We are in Psalm chapter 8, Psalm chapter 8, the majesty of our maker. We take a little break from 1 Corinthians and we're going to study this psalm. We're going to read it together, its entirety, which is nine verses. And if you'd follow along with me. For the choir director on Giddeth a Psalm of David, Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast established strength, because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God, and has crowned him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to be in awe and wonder at who you are. And this psalm really captures that. As David looks up probably on a starry night without the, the neon lights of the modern day and the pollution and haze and all of that. And he begins to consider the God who made everything and the God that had been so benevolent and kind to him personally. I recall in 2 Samuel when David said, Who am I, Lord, that you would do this for me, that you would build my house? I wanted to build you a house, and you said you would build my house, a house that would endure forever. Who am I? Yet you are so gracious, Lord. And this psalm is going to tell us that one of the ways that you have, perhaps the main way that you have revealed your majesty is in mankind. Mankind carries the image of God, the Imago Dei. It is a wonder. And yet that image, we know in some way, has been hurt and wounded and soiled by the fall. And a consequence of that fall has been that mankind loses what he was really created to be, to reflect God, to love others as God loves us. Father, I pray that we would this psalm would lead us to you. The word would lead us to the living God. And so I pray that wherever each of us are with our walk with you this morning, with maybe even how we see ourselves, the value that we place on ourselves, that you would speak into our hearts and you would encourage us that we are made in your image and love more than we could ever imagine. And I pray that you would speak to your people Speak hope and encouragement and life. And to those who don't know you yet, may they find life in the Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. The majesty of our maker. Well, Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise. You'll notice it's penned by David, as many of the psalms are. You get that at the top of the psalm. The choir director here on Giddeth uh, is a mystery to us. We don't know exactly what this is, but 
Many times at the beginning of a psalm, the music that was chosen is reflected in the heading. So this could be the music that the words were uh, joined with, or it could be that David uh, played an instrument from this area, or he learned this song or penned this psalm in Gath, uh, which uh, was a Philistine area. And David, of course, went through some trying times in that area. What we do know is that Psalm 8 is altogether a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. It begins and ends with the same words, and you could see these as bookends. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the focus, the object of praise is God. The psalm is bookended by the majesty of God. And this is a good reminder that when we pray, it would be good that we acknowledge the majesty of God right from the beginning of our prayers or our praise. By the way, praise is really just singing a prayer. Whenever you sing a song, essentially you're praying to song. And so many of you read through the Psalms and you do so as a means of prayer. And it's a beautiful thing to do. It's a, the, the book of Psalms is medicine for the soul. So whenever you're hurting or struggling or feeling depressed, I would point you to the book of Psalms. But the Psalms were sung and they really were the hymn book of Israel. And they would sing different Psalms at different feasts during the year. And this psalm is the object, of course, is God, the object of praise. And so the question that David answers in the verses in between is how is God's majesty on display? How is his majesty manifested? And we're going to see that the answer is in creation and the world of people that he made. Psalm 8, says one writer, is a poetic reflection of the great creation text of Genesis 1. Its primary idea is the condescending love and goodness of God toward man. The God who made the heavens and sought glory on them should have regard for man or visit him is really an overwhelming thought that God loves us that much. And I think that many moderns, because of the avalanche of evolutionary teaching, uh, the multitude of religions that are in the world, Man has become confused about who he is, and maybe you are that person even this morning. I think knowing your identity in Christ is one of the most important things, knowing that you've been made special in the image of God, but somehow that can get fractured, and even you know, with the uh, number of suicides that we have in our world, people just somehow have lost their own value. And sometimes that's because we measure our value by the the you know, the measuring rod of the world, the ruler of the world. So we, we've got to make sure that we measure up to them. And at every age that we live, and this is especially true maybe in our teenage years, is we, we feel this pressure to fit in. We're always trying to figure out who we are and what should we be living for? What is man? That's kind of in the central part of the theme of the psalm. And that is a good question that many people are asking. What is man? Why are we here? Where are we going? What is life really about? David's going to answer that really emphatically in this psalm as he uses what we might call the cosmological argument, the argument from creation. Notice in verse 1, O Lord, whenever you see Lord capitalized or in lower caps, it's the name Yahweh. What we have is Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H. We only have those consonants. We don't have the vowels. 
The vowels were removed at some point, but whenever you're reading the Bible and you see Lord in uppercase letters or uh, whatever they call that, lower caps, you know, at, where it's all capitalized, that's Yahweh. That's Y-H-W-H. That's the name of God, if you will. Now you see the second, our Lord, O Lord, our Lord, that's Adon or Adonai. And that means master or ruler. So the address is to the Lord, O Lord, it's a cry out to Yahweh, to the true and living God, our Lord. So notice it is also relational. Adonai, when you look up Adonai in the Hebrew picture language, it means the first judge. When you call out to the Lord, and remember Jesus Christ is called the Lord, when you call out to Adonai, you are saying you are the first judge. And here's what this means. This means that whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to run it by you first. You're the first judge. Everybody with me? When I make a decision, you're the first judge. When I make a moral decision, I'm going to run it by you first. I'm going to consult your word. I'm going to look to your spirit. I'm going to want to walk out my walk according to the dictates of your word. You are the first judge. You are my Lord. Luke 6, 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? <laughs> Amen? To call God Lord or my Lord is to say I'm in relationship with him where how I live my life is dictated by what he has for me. And he has beautiful and good plans for you. In Psalm 23, uh, I often share this psalm with those who are mourning the loss of a loved one, and it opens with, the Lord is my shepherd. And then I tell folks, you know what? The rest of that psalm belongs to you if you can say, the Lord is my shepherd. Then you can lie down in green pastures, have the still waters, and all of that that comes. Is he your Lord? Well, for David, of course he was. O Lord, our Lord. And it's not just David. It's the Lord of Israel and those who have been grafted in, everybody who believes in him. How majestic Adair is the Hebrew word. It means how wide, how large, how great, how awesome is your name in all the earth. When the angels were singing and Isaiah got a vision of the Lord and he saw the train of his robe and his glory, the angels were singing in what's called antiphonal praise, back and forth one to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. When David says, how majestic is your name, he's saying, Lord, you have put your name, your glory, your person, your attributes on display. And it is majestic. It is incredible. For us moderns, we have to slow down enough to actually look up, though. <laughs> Sometimes... You know, I'll be at my house and I'll be focused on doing like lawn work. How many of you are very focused when you're trying to get something done? This is me. When I'm doing yard work, I, I don't want to do anything else. I don't look around, you know. And uh, we had some young people who were visiting uh, from out of state and they were uh, staying at the house. And, he, and one of the young men goes, man, you guys have a tremendous view from your backyard. And I went, oh, yeah. I forgot about that view that we have. 
Sometimes we have to be almost reminded or prodded to realize the majesty that's all around us. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. It goes out everywhere to the ends of the earth, Psalm 19, 1 through 4. God has spoken. God has revealed His majesty. He has displayed His splendor, end of one. His splendor above the heavens. He has put His glory on display. He is a personal God. He is Adon or Adonai, the first judge. He is Lord over all, God par excellence. He is majestic. In her beautiful Magnificat, Mary praised the Lord for being the bondservant and the mother of the Messiah. And she says, Luke 1.49, For the Mighty One has, has done great things for me, and holy or excellent is His name. I mentioned Isaiah 6.3, where the angels cry out about the holiness of God. And in Isaiah 57.15, this is what God says, Thus says the High and Exalted One who lives forever, whose name is Holy. I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. God has put His great name on display in what He has made, His largeness, His grandeur on display. Darren, if you go to that first picture, uh, I just want you, I have a few photos for you, and I wanted you just to kind of just... ponder and consider and even meditate on what God has done, what he has made. His creative handiwork is everywhere. And it is, of course, in the stars as well. Uh, I think the astronomers of the day tell us that there are billions and billions and billions of stars. It's really an uncountable number. And we're told that God calls them all by name. In Isaiah 40, when the Uh, when Isaiah's asking a question, Israel's basically saying, does the Lord remember me? Has he forgotten me? And the answer is no, he hasn't forgotten you. He calls every star by name, and he knows your name as well. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. His name is another way to say his person. Uh, Turn over to Psalm 57 for a moment. Get a little bit more on this, Psalm 57. What does it mean, exalted above the heavens? Psalm 57. Let's take a peek. Psalm 57 in verse 5. It says, Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let thy glory be above all the earth. Skip down to verse 9. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to thee among the nations. For thy loving kindness is great, To the heavens, thy truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let thy glory be above all the earth. When you read your Bible, many times God is called God Most High. What does that mean? It means that He is the highest. He is above all things that He made. Creation is from Him. He is above the stars. He is above man. He is above 
everything that he made because he is the supreme one. This is what it means to call him majestic and Lord and to say holy is his name. He is above his creation. And you could say in one sense outside of his, his, his creation. That's why God can be timeless, by the way, or eternal. He started it. There was a time before time began, 2 Timothy 1.9, as hard as that is to fathom in our minds. God began everything when he created the world and he created uh, evening and morning. He is the author of time, therefore he is not bound by time. He is above or outside of his creation, yet he's also intimately involved in his creation. Sometimes people think the stars are the highest thing, but that's not true. God is above them. However that works in terms of spatial studies and all of those things. In the book of Genesis, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine to Abram. Now he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, listen to this, possessor of heaven and earth. That's Genesis 14. 18 and 19. The king of Sodom then comes and offers some stuff to Abram, and Abram refuses. He says, I'm not going to allow you to make me wealthy. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. When Jesus was on the earth and the demons acknowledged who he was, seeing Jesus, this man who was possessed by a multitude of demons, cried out, fell before Jesus, and said in a loud voice, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. God is the Most High in that He is above His creation, but He is above also all false gods. He is King of kings and Lord of lords and God of gods. In fact, every other so-called God with a small g is false and nothing anyway. He is the Most High. He is above it all, supreme and glorious. Turn to the book of Isaiah for a second. It's a little bit to your right, Isaiah 14. We know that Satan fell, and he desired to be like God. This is interesting language in light of what we're looking at, that God is the Most High. Isaiah 14, when Stephen's speaking to the Sanhedrin, he says, but it was Solomon who built a house for God. You want Isaiah 14. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Acts 7, 47 through 50. Check out Isaiah 14, 12. Scholars, a consensus of scholars believe this is talking about uh, Lucifer's fall, and here's what it says, Isaiah 14, 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne, notice, above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself What's your Bible say? Like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Back to Psalm 8. So you can see God's special place, uniquely His, 
He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And the psalm moves from the majesty of the created things like stars to the creation of man, namely to children. Verse 2, Psalm 8, From the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast established strength. If you have an NIV, it says, From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. I'll uh, comment just for a second that ordaining praise comes from the Septuagint version. That's the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's completed about 250 B.C., and it was the Bible most quoted during the time that Jesus was on the planet. And so the alternate reading, you have perfected praise or ordained praise, comes from the Septuagint version. That's why you have a little difference in uh, some of the modern translations. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength or you have ordained praise. There is something amazing about little children praising God. In fact, they don't have to really be convinced that there's a God. Uh, all you have to do is just share some basics with them, and they get it. And uh, they have this, you know, Jesus said, he talked about childlike faith, and in fact, he said, unless you have the faith as a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And someone once said, we have to have a child's heart and a grown-up's brain. We are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It doesn't mean that you just check your brain at the door. You, you want to have a grown-up mind. You want to be good at studying the Word and you know, uh, uh, glorifying God with your intellect, but you also want to have childlike faith. God is your Father. He, he has adopted you into His family. And when little kids are up here either singing songs or doing the kids' praise plays, it is so cute to just watch them praise the Lord. And especially when one of them goes a bit rogue. Have you ever noticed that? There's always a couple that go rogue in the play, right? And they're off just doing their own thing and <laughs> waving at their parents and that kind of thing. And you know what? That's all right because it's just, it's just a blessing to see the wonder of a child. Uh, not every child gets to grow up in a home where God is praised. Maybe you did not. Maybe uh, for you, it, uh, it was something that you realized when you were older. Oftentimes, when you are raised in an atheistic household, uh, if, if it's militant, there's even anger towards God. And a lot of people, you know, there, there's reasons why people end up there. So I'm not going to comment a lot on that, but I'll just tell you this, that once you realize that you were made by God and he loves you and has a plan for your life, it just changes everything. And I think little children don't really have to spend a lot of time getting all the garbage out of the way because they're just, you know, they, they just uh, ooze with the image of God, I think is uh, how we'd say it. You've heard the phrase, out of the mouths of babes, and sometimes when we say that, it's a negative connotation, you know. Kids say the darndest things, don't they? Especially in the store in front of people that you didn't want them to repeat it in front of. <laughs> no, don't say that. But you said that a couple hours ago. Yeah, but we only say those things in certain settings when other people aren't listening. You'll figure that out when you grow up. Right? And so the majesty of God is a positive here from the mouths of babes or little children. You have perfected praise or ordained strength. 
Psalm 139 comes to mind. Turn over there. Psalm 139. This is the majestic psalm speaking of the creation of humans, and namely, uh, David is here celebrating God's handiwork in making humans. Psalm 139, uh, let's look at verses, we'll start at verse 13. And uh, Darren, let's go to that second picture. I wanted to show the folks kind of a joyful picture here. Uh, I think it's the next one. There you go. So, so you know, that, that's just so neat to see uh, through the praise of children and infants you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Um, there's a story some years ago, I'm trying to remember the exact setting of it, but it was during the war, World War I or II, and there was fighting going on, they were shooting, and a little child walked out of a home or a barn, and, uh, you know, the enemies were firing at one another, and they saw the little kid coming through the midst of the firing line, and they, everybody stopped. And just for a moment, the presence of a little child, the innocence of a little child, stopped the war, stopped the fighting. And sometimes, you know, when we're going through life, sometimes we just need to be smacked with the reality that we're setting a tone for the next generation. And sometimes the innocence of a child and what's best for a child comes to the fore. You know what I'm saying? We, we realize, what are we doing? We, we need to stop. You know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but with the whole uh, debate in our culture about abortion and, you know, uh, laws that have passed, been passed in certain states about not even giving basic medical care to a botched abortion, I, I don't even know how to comment on that because it's just like we've lost, how, how is it that we could even think that that's okay? Now, this is not an indictment on those of you who have experienced an abortion, but but our eyes have been opened even to that, right? You become a Christian and then you realize, you know, and for some of you who have gone through abortion, you kind of do this, what have I done? And then, and then you learn to rest in the, in the goodness and grace of God. This is what David says. He says, Psalm 139, 13. Note the emphasis on made. Thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. 139, 14. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works. My soul knows it very well. This is the updated New American Standard in 13. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. When God designed man, and even in the womb, uh, I would argue that the womb is one of the most sacred places in all the world. And God is a weaver. He forms. He is doing his handiwork. And, and I'm not going to tell you that I understand all of that. But I, what I, one thing I do know is that it's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. When uh, Shane was born, if you turn to the book of Genesis chapter 2, our first child, Brenda, was uh, being prepared. And uh, I was literally pacing the hallways. And I, I never understood that whole thing about pacing until my wife was about to give birth to our firstborn. And I was pacing, and there, there was a nurse that was there from the church, and she was like, calm down, Pastor Michael, calm down. And I'm like, 
give me one of those brown bags. I need to breathe into it. And I was pacing, and Shane was finally born, and they wrapped him up tight, and they put him in one of those little blankies, and I carried him out to my mother-in-law, Anne. And they had wrapped him so tight that it didn't look like he had legs. And Anne, Anne later said, I thought maybe something was wrong, but he, he was wrapped so tight. And then when we opened up the blanket, he went, bling, and he, he did have legs, and it was cool, but... But anyway, I'm not even sure why I went there. <laughs> Genesis 2. Maybe just for the pling. Verse 4. This is the account for the generations of the heavens and the earth. When they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. This is the, uh, verse, chapter 2, verse 4 is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is not a second creation account, but the scene is more localized to the garden. I just want you to see verse 7. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man, ha-adam, of dust from the ground and breathed, or blew, literally, into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, you guys know that when you study the creation account, God said, God said, God said. But when he made man, verse 7, Genesis 2, God formed of the dust of the ground. He formed man. The play on words in English is something like this. God formed earthling from earth. This is a term uh, formed or crafted. It's yasar in Hebrew. And it's used for a potter shaping pottery. Although God created light with a mere word, he created man by fashioning a body out of mud and clay. Uh, this is from, um, oh, I think it may be Hughes. Uh, out of mud and clay, transforming clay into something new. One writer says it was in close proximity. It was breath to breath, life to life. God formed him and then breathed into him. Almost the view, the, the view could be almost like God did mouth to mouth to breathe life into the first man. He formed him by his creative handiwork and then breathed his breath into him. God is uh, so intimately in, involved in the creation of mankind that this is what he does in the garden. He forms him in close proximity. You know, when you form something, if you've ever seen a potter with the clay, man, that's a close relationship, and the water's going, and the, the shaping's going, and you could imagine some of that, and then the, the breath goes in. He formed is the idea of careful design, and then he breathed into man the breath of life. Do you remember when Jesus healed the blind man, the man born blind? He took mud and spittle, his own spit, and he formed clay out of it, and he put it on the man's eyes. The man had been born blind, and he told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And uh, scholars like to t take that scene back to Genesis 2 and point to the fact that Jesus, get this, is the creator. How many things did Jesus make? All things. And so that garden scene, you have to think of the triune God now. See, he is the one that formed us. The one that formed us became one of us. That's deep, isn't it? 
The God who formed us in the garden and made us to be in His image also became one of us. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, Psalm 33, 6. By the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength. Uh, Turn over to Matthew. Matthew 19. Two times in the New Testament, Psalm 8 is quoted once by Jesus in the book of Matthew. I want to show you just a couple glimpses and show you the direct quotation because I think it answers how we interpret Psalm 8, verse 2. So Matthew 19, verse 13. This will be familiar to you. Some children were brought to Jesus. Matthew 19, 13. So that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them, but Jesus said... Matthew 19, 14, Let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Flip over to Matthew 21, 14. The blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, 21, 14 of Matthew, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, 21.15, and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, you would think that they would become thrilled, but they became indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read experts of the law? (laughs) Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, Thou hast prepared praise for thyself. You have perfected praise. You have ordained praise. And he left them, the religious leadership, who were indignant and went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Isn't it amazing? When Jesus was doing miracles in the temples, the little kids got it, and the little kids began to say, Hosanna to the son of David. And the religious leaders were like, Quiet! Quiet those little kids! Those little kids knew more than they knew or at least were willing to praise. They were praising instead of you, religious leaders. You should have been praising him. You should have been lauding him. But instead you rejected him to protect your precious little positions in the nation. And they did what you should have been doing and they convicted you. And instead of joining with the little kids and following their lead, you wanted them to be quiet. Just like when the people were giving Jesus uh, proclamation as the Messiah from Psalm 118, and they said, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus said, if they're quiet, I'm telling you, the rocks are going to cry out. It's going to be the first rock concert. (laughs) Yes. If they're quiet, the stones are crying out. Here's the irony. The rocks and the children know more than the religious brass of the day, who sadly had become the enemies of Yahweh. Maybe they're the ones in Psalm 8 too. The enemies of God, silenced by the praise of little kids. Isn't it sad? The people who knew the scriptures the best, allegedly, 
became the enemies of God. And little kids, in one sense, silenced their mouths, proclaimed the strength and the praise of God that should have come from them. Okay, we have to move fast. Back to Psalm 8. I always think it's 45 minutes, and then I start preaching, and I don't know. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you on the second row. Psalm 8, verse 3. When I consider, when I think about, ponder, contemplate, reflect on thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, which you have set in place, when I think about it, uh, I think we might have another picture. There we go. Uh, you know, NASA has done some incredible things when uh, taking some photographs. Have you guys seen photographs from space? And then they take a photograph of the Earth. It's an amazing thing. We're, folks, we're on a ball in the middle of space. I hope somebody's driving. If this is all the consequence of some cosmic accident eons ago, I'm not going to sleep well at night anymore. Because nobody's steering according to the experts. This is what's happening out in space, right? But David says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, God's fingers stretched out in some majestic way that's beyond my puny brain. Even this vast universe that we haven't explored seemingly an inch of it he made it all he's the creator of all this grandeur all these new stars that we discover and we will call and that one's bigger than the last one and we named that one and and it's Betelgeuse and it's this and that and it's alpha centauri and, 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 and the lord did this how majestic is his name can i get a hallelujah or an amen in all the earth? I mean, this is the work of his fingers. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with splendor and majesty. For since the creation of the world, Romans 1.20, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that man is without excuse. Romans 1.20, just from the physical creation alone, man is inexcusable. He sees God's divine attributes in the power manifested in creation, but even uh, more in man. And so David says, what is man? That thou dost take thought of him or are mindful of him for the son of man that thou dost care for him. Lauren Isley says, man is the cosmic orphan. He is the only creature in the universe who asks why. Other animals have instincts to guide them, but man has learned to ask questions. Who am I? He asks, why am I here? Where am I going? And David, when he looked up and saw how puny he was in comparison to the grandeur of creation, asked the question, what is man or who am I? David was overwhelmed when God said, I was going to build a house. I'll build a house for you. In comparison with the lofty heavens, the radiant moon, the hosts of sparkling stars, man seems to the psalmist wholly unworthy of God's attention. G. Campbell Morgan says, In the presence of the glorious heaven, man seems beneath consideration. 
yet it is not so. Man is greater than all. He is but a little lower than God. His place is that of dominion. As man considers the heavens and puts, it puts him in wonder, especially at God's consideration of him. Later in Psalm 139, David says, How precious also are thy thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. David is in awe that God thinks about him, but God didn't just think about us. God made us in his image. Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God, verse 5, and dost crown him with glory and majesty. The answer to the question of verse 4 is stunning, says the New King James Study Bible. Man as male and female stands at the summit of God's creation. In fact, man is the jewel of God's creation. The only being that we know of, and this is what the Bible explicitly says, made in the image of God. The only being to reflect him in some special way. This brings wonder. When God created man, he made man or mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Mankind is unique, distinct from everything else God made. God created man in his own image. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Here's some thoughts. It means to uh, those aspects of human nature not shared by animals, attributes such as moral consciousness, the ability to think abstractly, the ability to reason, an understanding of beauty and emotion. Above all, says this writer, the capacity of worshiping and loving. And I would add to that the ability to be creative. See, we are by nature creators. We, we enjoy, and some of you are more creative than others, let's face it. Uh, I am surrounded by creative people in my family. I'm not that creative in that way, but they are. They make music. They make art. And aren't you in awe of people who are good at those kind of things? Somebody who can paint a painting and actually do something other than a stick figure? I'm, I'm just blown away by that kind of creativity. And that's something that God has placed in you and me. Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God. Thou dost crown him with glory and majesty. Men and women were made to be king and queen of the earth. To rule. Thou dost make him six to rule over the works of thy hands. When God placed Adam in the garden, he named the animals. He was to cultivate and keep what God had made. Thou hast put how many things? All things, verse 6, under his feet. Man has dominion over all sheep and oxen. Also, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea, including the biggest whale you can think of, sea monsters, and the undiscoverable, you know, things that haven't even, things wash up on the shore, and, and scientists don't even know how to categorize some things. Some things that have washed up on the shore look like dinosaurs, frankly. But dinosaurs are supposed to be extinct, so they have to call them something else. You see, man has been given this special place, this special dominion over everything that God has made. 
to be a caretaker of it, to take dominion over it. He is crowned. He is given this special place. And notice the final bookend, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. I want to take you to Hebrews 2 and we're done. Hebrews 2, all the way in your New Testament. This is again uh, quoted in the, by the writer of Hebrews and uh, it's going to take us to the gospel and it's just a beautiful way, I think, to end this teaching. This is uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 5. The writer is continually showing the superiority of Jesus to everything, including angels, the creation, prophets, etc. Hebrews 2.5, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, by the way, the writer of Hebrews knows where this is located. He's not having one of those moments where we say, it's, I know it says it somewhere. <laughs> somewhere in the Bible, right? He knows where it is. What is man that thou rememberest him, or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou, Hebrews 2.7, has made him for a little while lower than the angels. That's the variant reading from the Septuagint. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. So this is another thing the Septuagint has different. Instead of a lo little lower than God, it has angels. But I think both are true as we keep reading. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, this includes man, but you're going to see it's pointing to Christ as well. He left nothing that is not subject to him, but now... We do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who's been made for a little while lower than the angels. Remember now, the God-man is coming into focus. The God who formed us and made us came into the world. And for a little while, he set aside the prerogatives of deity. A little while lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, because of the, he came for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God, he, Jesus, might taste death for everyone. We know the garden scene turns a little bit ugly, right? God forms man, and there's this beautiful relationship. God walks with man in the cool of the day. There's intimacy, but then man falls to sin. And he falls in that relationship, and now sin separates him from his maker, the beautiful fellowship that he once had is now marred and soiled. And so there has to be a remedy for sin because God is holy and he will not put up with sin and he must judge sin. So the one who formed us becomes one of us. He is formed in Mary's womb. Mary, did you know? And he comes into the world on a starry Bethlehem night to be praised by angels and visited by shepherds. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among men with whom he is pleased. And the shepherds say, Let us, let's go quickly. Let's go see this great sight. And he's born into the world, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he comes to rescue us. He tastes death, the sting of the curse for every one of us. 
For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. See, Jesus becoming fully human knows what it means to suffer. And I want you to skip down to verse 14. Since then the children share in flesh and blood were human. He himself likewise, Jesus also partook of the same. He became human. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus Christ came into this world because he knows what tempts us. He knows what ails us. He knows our sin problem. And he came into the world to rescue us. The God who made everything became one of us. And he didn't just become one of us. He went to that terrible cross and died for us, tasted death for each one of us, that he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And when you leave today, you're going to go out into a city where people are walking everywhere with a fear of death. Some people are absolutely petrified because they don't know why they're here. They don't know what life means and they don't know where they're going. But the God who made us also came to save us. And if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things have gone, new things have come. And you can be free, even from the fear of death. I know it freaks us out. I know, you know, we have this experience here on the planet and, and we wonder, what's next? Is there a heaven? Is this true? Well, the psalmist says to us, yes. God made everything, emphatically put it on display. He's put his majesty on display in humans. Don't just pass the next human by and think nothing of them. Look into the eyes of a little child. Look maybe afresh into the eyes of people all around you. Don't devalue what God values. Don't devalue yourself. God loves you so much that he came to rescue you. He has prepared a place for you in heaven. And he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwell. Behold, I make all things new. This is only the beginning of the story. Amen? Only the beginning of your story. Trust in Christ. If you don't know him, you're not sure. Maybe you've been coming to church for a while and maybe you just haven't understood this whole picture. You can have hope today. But you must open your heart. You must hear the good news of the gospel and just simply say, Lord, I surrender. I had the privilege of praying with someone the other day who finally surrendered to Christ after many years. And you know what? Um, it's such a blessing and you know, it really comes down to this. It's just about surrendering. 
and we fight it. We fight it, and sometimes we fight it because we don't think we deserve God to care about us. Sometimes we have so much guilt, we wonder, does the gospel really work for me? It does. <laughs> it works for all of us, we just have to trust. Father, thank you so much for Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Thank you so much for what you've done. When we consider the work of your fingers, the stars, the moon, the stars, the things that you have made, what is man? And yet, you have made us to have this special place. Oh Lord, I, I look at the landscape today and there's so many who have been raised with an anti-God evolutionary theory worldview that really makes their life meaningless. And secondly, there's no evidence for it anyway. It's just weak and bankrupt. Your glory is on display every day, day after day. Humanity is really bombarded with the glory of God in creation, in the creation of man, in our own conscience, in the canon of scripture, in the changed lives around us, in the eyes of a child, the praise of their lips. Oh Lord, would you renew our faith? Would you grant us beauty for ashes? A shout of joy after a night of mourning? Would you renew faith in this room? Would you refresh hearts that just needed to be encouraged that you are there, you are faithful, that you love us, that we do have a special place? And for those who may have been even questioning the value of their own existence, may they never believe that lie. The enemy comes and lies to us. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. But you came that we might have life have it to the full. Help us to live out what you've put in our hearts, to go in the way that we should go, that you designed us to use the gifts, to enjoy the life that you've given to us, to, to enjoy the planet that you blessed us with, to slow down and drink in the beauty of life. And then the new life that we celebrate in Christ, how much more could you do for us that you made us new, after doing everything for us to come and save us as well. What can we say to these things? Except if God is for us, who can be against us? So if you need to open your heart to the Lord, maybe you just need to rededicate your life. You don't have to have a perfect prayer, but just ask Jesus to save you if you're not a Christian. Tell him, I believe in that cross, your death on that cross, your resurrection from the dead. And I put my faith and trust in you. Today is my day. I believe. Change me, Lord. Save me. Forgive me. Cry out to him. Don't let the moment pass you by. If you need to have your faith just refreshed or you need to rededicate, I think you can voice that prayer between you and God. And Lord, for this precious congregation, ambassadors of truth, those who are growing and getting the word out about who you are, about true life. May you bless them. May you encourage our missionaries, our evangelism team, everyone in this fellowship who's trying to make a difference inside and outside the church. May you bless them and encourage them in Jesus' name. Amen.